if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. I'm recording this during Holy Week. That's what Catholics call the week during which we remember the events between Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and his resurrection a week later on Easter. Now, this is not going to be a typical episode of Considering Catholicism, nor is it a traditional Holy Week reflection. In fact, I want to reflect on the contrast between two seemingly unrelated topics, Easter and transgender ideology. Now, I'm assuming that your first reaction to that last sentence was something like, why? And what do those two things possibly have to do with one another? Well, stick with me for the next 25 minutes or so, and I'll explain, because the juxtaposition of these two can teach us something really important about the Catholic faith and clarify the choices that we must make if we were to accept or hold or much less share that faith. So, let's start with transgender ideology. Then we'll move on to Easter. And I'll explain the choice that these two concepts really force us to make. But before I dive into transgender ideology, let me head off a potential misunderstanding. Some of you are probably wondering if I'm going to attack or demean or beat up on gay people in this episode. No. No, I'm not. I will simply say that the church's teaching on homosexuality has been consistent for 2,000 years. Even though it's under pressure from a lot of critics in the last 20 years, some from even inside the church. But that's another topic for some other episode sometime. No, the ideology and agenda of transgenderism is not the same thing as homosexuality, despite it being lumped in as the T in the alphabet soup of LGBTQIA and any other letters that have gotten tossed onto that pile in the last month. Let me say it again so there's no confusion. Transgender ideology is not the same thing as homosexuality. Philosophically, transgender ideology is something different than same-sex attraction or gay marriage, and it contradicts the fundamental doctrines not only of Catholicism, but of Christianity in general, and the Gospel of Easter in particular. Now, judging from the news today, you might think that the whole world has gone trans. And with the prominence that it's getting in the news and in our political life, Anyone considering Catholicism needs to know that the church offers not just a different definition of the words woman and man, but a completely different understanding of humanity upon which the good news of Easter rests. But before I get into all of that, I need to make all of the usual disclaimers that our culture demands before we can comment or much less critique, any of the intellectual concepts that constitute the various LGBTQ ideologies. So first, I'm not criticizing people here, but ideas. We're supposed to be able to evaluate and debate ideas, right? Especially philosophical doctrines. 
certainly transgender activists regularly attack Christian doctrines. No one ever says that our ideas are off limits because we might take any critique as a personal attack. So why can't Christians respond by engaging in a debate over these concepts? And second, yes, obviously we have to have compassion for those who suffer with feelings of gender dysmorphia or whatever it's called this week. And we don't want them to feel that Catholicism hates them or they're unwelcome. But beyond a certain point, this insistence on compassion becomes a kind of, well, it becomes a kind of emotional blackmail. Let me explain what I mean by that. Consider other people that have what Catholic theology might call disordered feelings. For example, tendencies to pointless anger and violence, which can become so rooted in someone's personality that they become part of their identity. So think of someone who grows up in like an organized crime culture that cultivates violence and sociopathy. No one ever says, the church shouldn't condemn unjust anger and violence because it will make angry and violent people feel sad and unwelcome. No one ever says, we must accompany sociopaths on their spiritual journey. That's ridiculous. When Catholics, even priests, look the other way in the face of mafia dons or drug cartels, It's usually because they're intimidated and compromised. Now, I am not saying that transgender persons or activists are angry or violent or sociopathic, so no one put those words in my mouth. But I am saying that we only give a pass to other contradictions of Catholic teaching when we're afraid of the consequences of speaking out against them. And at the moment, a lot of us are truthfully afraid of criticizing the transgender movement because it's one of the surest ways to lose your job or your podcast hosting provider. So if this episode shuts down the Considering Catholicism podcast, well, I guess I'll have made my point. But I do feel compassion for transgender persons because they've been sold a falsehood. And my heart breaks for untold legions of children that are right now being indoctrinated. And that's exactly the right word. With a doctrine that contradicts Christianity and renders the good news of Easter useless. So, with those disclaimers out of the way, let me explain why transgenderism is philosophically incompatible with Christianity in general and Catholicism in particular. Transgender ideology is premised upon an essential disconnection between human identity and the human body. So just this week, I listened to a transgender activist, a college professor giving a lecture on YouTube. And she, the college professor, had to start her lecture by telling the audience that she was in fact a she and that her pronouns were her hers. She said that we're faced with a choice. And this is, I think, probably the first time in human history that we've become even aware that we have this choice, but we're living in special times. The choice that she laid out is this. Should our identity be forced to conform to our body, or should our body be conformed to match our perceived identity? Well, she explained, we now have the technology to choose option B, to conform our bodies to match our perceived identities. And she said compassion demands that we allow people to conform their bodies to their perceived identities. Now, set aside the emotional drama of kids being unhappy with who they are. Instead, with some intellectual objectivity, let's examine the premise of that idea. 
The premise that we are composed of two separate entities. We have an identity, whatever that is, on the one hand, which is distinct from our body. Furthermore, sometimes our components, our identity and our body, are misaligned. So here's my question. Is that true? Now, the first thing that I want you to notice is that this is not a question that science can answer, especially politically or emotionally driven science. The argument that we have two distinct components, an identity and a body, and that these are not only distinct but sometimes out of sync with each other, is a possible answer to one of the most fundamental philosophical questions that man has debated for thousands of years. What is a human being? The ancient Greek philosophers like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle all considered this question. And so did every other culture and philosophy and religious tradition. Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam and the Vikings and African and Native American religions. All of them have offered various answers to the question, what is a human being? And of course, Christianity has an answer as well. And yet, in the span of, what, 20 years? A relatively small number of activists and academics, primarily in America, claim to have solved this age-old riddle without any regard or reference to any of the points made over the previous 10,000 years of debate. And they're trying to shut down discussion of mankind's oldest and most fundamental question. If that isn't first-world arrogance and cultural imperialism, then I don't know what it is. So, what is a human being? Forget man or woman for the moment. What does the word human even mean? Because words have to have fixed meanings, otherwise they're just useless for communication. So, if transgender activists want to redefine the word human and force the rest of, well, humanity, to use the word in a new way, then they at least owe us the courtesy of suggesting a thoughtful and precise definition. And if they aren't prepared for the rest of the human race to even have a, a response or a say in this new definition, then their naivete and arrogance is, well, laughable. Of course we have thoughts, and of course we have questions, and of course we're going to respond. But as near as we can tell from this, frankly, disorganized philosophical mess of a movement, Transgenderism is premised upon an ontological disconnect between a human's identity and a human's body. Now, you may think that you have a rough understanding of what a human body is, but these same activists are now telling us that not even biologists can really tell us much about the body. Transgender theorists, if that's what we're supposed to call them, glibly assert that even chromosomes and physical form are just plastic, just so much biological material that can be redefined and molded and reshaped to match the inner identity. And what exactly is this identity? Again, every culture and religion has weighed in on this for 10,000 years, so we shouldn't feel bound to whatever transgender experts are offering this month. Is the identity a, an immortal soul that somehow lasts after the body dies? Or is it just temporary brainwave patterns like your computer's RAM memory that disappear when the power goes out? Is the body a temporary shell that the soul inhabits before going on to 
paradise or Valhalla? Or is it assigned a series of bodies through reincarnation, as the Hindus suggest? And does that identity precede or exist before the body comes into existence? Are we souls that have been given or assigned bodies? And do sometimes we get assigned the wrong body? Let's get something straight. Transgender activists or theorists or philosophers or whatever they are don't have access to any new information about the nature of humanity than all those other religions uh, had. Transgender activists like to wrap themselves in scientific-sounding jargon, but it's all quackery and pseudoscience because by their own admission, real scientists, biologists and geneticists and professors of anatomy, can't answer the question. Transgender experts are at best social scientists, or at worst, they're political activists with an agenda to remake human society according to half-baked theories that they made up last week. In reality, these activists are philosophers and clerics that are offering a new, essentially religious, answer to mankind's oldest and most fundamental philosophical question. Now, to be fair, that doesn't necessarily make them wrong. They might very well have stumbled upon the right answer after all these millennia. But at face value, transgender ideology deserves no more than to be considered alongside those other philosophies and religions. As if to prove the point about the religious nature of transgender ideology, this very week, Rowan Williams, who's the former Archbishop of Canterbury for the Church of England, wrote that, quote, to be trans is to enter a sacred journey of becoming whole. Again, maybe Bishop Williams is right, and this is a sacred journey towards some sort of transcendental or existential wholeness. But that's no more of a scientific judgment than to say that it moves a soul to reconcile its past and future lives on its journey of reincarnation. And yet, again, all of this is wrapped up in pseudoscientific jargon to intimidate anyone who would question or object to it. But in reality, the only science involved in any of this is the new technologies that are now being used to shape the body to match the soulish identity, whatever that is. So, our chemistry has developed puberty blockers and hormone supplements to mimic secondary sex characteristics. Surgeons can now safely amputate breasts and genitals and have developed techniques to create facsimiles of new genitals. But there is no science, none, nada, nothing, and if you think there is, show it to me, that proves that any of this should be done. Now, you might be asking, well, how is this any different than Christian or Catholic beliefs about the nature of human life? Well, for one thing, transgender ideology is now the official policy of the United States government and progressive state and local governments around the country, not to mention every public school from kindergarten through university. Can you imagine the reaction if the feds or schools propagated Catholic doctrines about immortal souls and bodies? Well, how is that materially different than teaching kids that they have transcendent identities? for all intents and purposes, souls, while their bodies are these mutable shells that must be made to conform to these souls? How is this not essentially religious instruction being presented as scientific fact with the endorsement of the state? Christianity offers an answer to the question, 
what is a human being? And more particularly, what is the relationship between consciousness, identity, and the body? But as a Christian, I'm willing to admit that it is a religious answer to a philosophical question, while its competitors and critics pretend that their answers are not. But just one caveat. Religious answers to philosophical questions can either be reasonable or unreasonable. Religious knowledge can and should be subjected to the examination of reason. In Catholicism, doctors of the church like Thomas Aquinas or Anselm wrote extensively about how reason and faith can work together to bring us to understanding. For example, if I were to say that I've invented a new religion that believes that trans-dimensional aliens from a remote galaxy installed a giant vending machine on the dark side of the moon that dispenses souls into new bodies exactly one year after birth, well, I'd better expect a lot of people to have a lot of questions and to be subjected to an examination of the reasonableness of my claims. Catholicism's answers have been subjected to the examination of reason for 2,000 years. Transgender ideologues can't exist that their beliefs are immune to examination, totally off limits. Now, I believe that the Christian answer, particularly as articulated by Catholic Christianity, is not only entirely reasonable, it is more reasonable than the pseudoscientific quack religious mishmash that's being served up by the transgender activists. And so, with all of that being said, what is Christianity's answer to the question, what is a human being? What I'm going to present is the historic doctrine of humanity, given through the combined Old and New Testaments, as understood and taught by Christ's apostles, and handed down for 2,000 years through their successors. While this is not a uniquely Catholic answer, I believe that among all of the branches of Christianity, the Catholic Church has most clearly and consistently articulated this fundamental doctrine. And this is the Considering Catholicism podcast, so consider this. A human being is the inseparable fusion of an immortal soul with a physical body. Without a body, a soul is a human soul, but not a human being. A body from which the soul has departed is a human body, but not a human being. It takes both body and soul together to make a complete human person. And the soul does not precede the body. There's no heavenly departure lounge where souls are waiting to be assigned bodies. The soul is created from nothing at the time that the body is created, not before not five minutes after conception or after 12 weeks or after the second trimester or at birth. A fully human person is never without both a body and a soul. They are inherently, inextricably, inevitably bound together. The book of Genesis speaks of this mysterious union. In chapter one, we read that God created mankind both male and female. Gender is not assigned by doctors or simply a social construct or a moldable plastic projection of our inner emotional identity. Gender was intrinsic to the original design, the intended essence of a human being, before the breaking of the world by sin. In Genesis chapter 2, we read that from the dust of the ground, God formed a man and breathed life into him. When you think about it, this is a remarkable point. 
we are not souls that have been given bodies. We are bodies that have been given life. And the soul, our identity, springs from that moment of creation. And so, transgender ideology is not merely in conflict with Christian tradition or culture. It's not even primarily a deviation from Christian sexual morality. Sexual behavior doesn't even seem to be at the core of transgender ideology at all. No, it is instead driven by a a different concept of humanity, a a different answer to the age-old question of what is a human being. And transgender ideology is a theological doctrine of man that is, at the philosophical level, in direct, irreconcilable conflict with biblical, historical Christianity. While we should be compassionate for those who are emotionally confused, and perhaps in some cases suffering from a measure of delusion or mental illness, our empathy can't bridge this fundamental gap in understanding. And it ought to raise grave questions about how and why very young children, increasingly toddlers and preschoolers, are being indoctrinated into this new theological worldview that's in direct conflict with the teaching not only of Christianity, but of all of the other Abrahamic religions, Judaism and Islam. And in many cases, this is being forced on them without the consent of parents by the full power of the progressive state, from the federal government down to local school boards. Now, what does all of this have to do with Easter? Well, Easter is the central doctrine of Christianity. Not a central teaching. It is the central message, the whole point of the Christian gospel. So let me articulate it as clearly as possible. Through disobedience of God, mankind fell into sin. And that sin introduced corruption and death into the human body. It became subject to injury and old age, to disease and death. We became mortal. Death is like a congenital disorder that's been passed on from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And because human beings are a fusion of body and soul, death became the inevitable conclusion to human life. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for man's iniquity. In the incarnation, he took on two natures, fully God and fully man. He embraced that fusion. And in that fullness of humanity, he died on a Roman cross on our behalf. His body was laid in the grave and his soul descended into Hades the place of the dead. And then, on Easter morning, he rose. His soul was reunited with his resurrected body. Not a new body, not a different body, for the risen Christ showed the apostles that he still bore the scars from his crucifixion. As a result, the unnatural separation of our souls from our bodies at death is not the final verdict of our lives. As he rose, so too will we rise. We will be resurrected so that human beings can be what their creator intended them to be, the dust of the earth with life breathed into them, the image of God in flesh. Christianity absolutely teaches compassion, empathy, love for our neighbors, especially those who are distressed and disturbed. But that love 
is an effect. The direct cause is Christ's love for us, literally embodied in the good news of Easter. As we have been loved, as we have been given new life, as we have been given the hope of resurrection, so we pass that on to others. The Easter message does not attack people suffering from various mental or emotional disorders or those lied to or indoctrinated by transgender ideologues. It stands in stark contrast to those ideologies, and it says, no, this is what a human being is, what a human being is meant to be, and what human beings will become again because of what happened on Easter morning. The keystone of Christianity is the bodily resurrection of Christ, which is the first fruits of our own coming resurrection. If that keystone is pulled, the whole arch collapses. Now, the culturally and politically correct response to that today is, no, Christianity's central teaching is love and affirmation and tolerance for diversity and inclusion of the most marginal and queer among us. And so Christianity must embrace transgenderism out of empathy for other people's sacred journeys. But that isn't possible. To attempt to reconcile the gospel with transgender ideologies that disconnect human identity from the human body is to say that historical Christianity is wrong about the nature of human life. But you can't have it both ways. You can't say that Christianity and Christian civilization has been fundamentally wrong about one of its central doctrines, the doctrine of humanity, and at the same time say that this has no effects or implications for its actual central doctrine, the resurrection of Christ and our own coming resurrection. Look, if anyone has ever had the right to define what Christianity actually is, it was the apostles. Because without them, we wouldn't even know what Jesus said and did. And this is where Catholicism articulates Christian doctrine a bit differently than evangelical Protestants. Catholicism rests upon Scripture and the authority of the apostles who wrote, interpreted, and implemented Christ's teaching. Without apostolic authority as a judge, then you're just free to make up beliefs and assign them to a mythical Jesus of your own liking, or to Buddha or Yoda or whoever you want to invent. And that's exactly what those who want to reconcile Christianity with the transgender view of man are doing. They're inventing a new false Christianity. All of us delight in St. Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13, where he writes, Love is patient and kind. It is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. But the same St. Paul who wrote those beautiful words, only 50 short verses later, says that without the doctrine of the resurrection of the body, Christianity is worthless. Christianity stands or falls on the intrinsic relationship between the body and the soul, or identity, and the hope that it offers to restore that relationship in the resurrection. So where do we go from here? How and why and from where has this ideology that separates human identity from the human body arisen? And perhaps, more importantly, what do we do about it? How can we respond? Well, there is historical precedent. For thousands of years, Christianity has had to deal with a particular heresy that periodically raises its head. 
It has come in many forms and under different names, but it's best known as the Gnostic heresy. And biblical historic Catholic Christianity has had to respond to it over and over again throughout the millennia. And there are lessons that we can learn and apply again today. And if you'd like to learn more about that, then message me through the Considering Catholicism Facebook page or send me an email at owa at oneworldlingadventure.org. And perhaps I'll record some podcast episodes about how Christianity has responded to Gnosticism before and what it can do in the 21st century. And Happy Easter! One of the best ways to learn more about Catholicism, its beliefs and practices, saints and stories, heritage and culture, is to visit the places where the Catholic story actually unfolded with someone who can explain it, answer your questions, and help you apply it to your life, especially as a part of a group of pilgrims that are sharing and supporting and praying for each other as they discover together. That's why the ministry that produces this podcast One Whirling Adventure offers pilgrimage trips. I'll be your guide and teacher, unpacking Catholic faith, life, and heritage for you in some of Catholicism's most significant sites. If you'd like to join me for a pilgrimage to places like Italy, Ireland, Israel, or France, visit the website oneworlingadventure.org to see the dates and details of upcoming trips. That's oneworlingadventure.org and click on the travel tab at the top. Let's discover our Catholic faith and heritage together. Thank you for listening. Considering Catholicism is produced by One Whirling Adventure, a 501c3 nonprofit organization with a simple mission to excite and educate people about historic Catholic Christianity and to equip them to live, share, and defend it in the 21st century. We depend completely on your generous donations. Learn more and consider supporting our ministry by visiting oneworlingadventure.org.